We're going to find the leakers and they're going to pay a big price. So declared Donald Trump in the first few weeks of his presidency, signaling that his administration would aggressively go after leakers who were spilling secrets to the press. At the time, Trump was incensed by stories about his administration's ties to Russia, including phone calls between his first national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and the Russian ambassador. And yet, throughout the rest of his term, Trump's Justice Department brought relatively few leak cases, at least compared to that of his predecessor. But in recent weeks, we've started to learn much more. The Washington Post disclosed that it had been notified by the Justice Department that three of its reporters' phone records were subpoenaed last year in an effort to identify their sources for stories they wrote three years earlier in 2017. Then CNN disclosed that one of its reporters' phone records had been secretly subpoenaed. And now the New York Times has revealed that four of its reporters had their phone records pulled, all under Trump's last Attorney General, William Barr. How dangerous a development is this for the news media? And how does it compare with similarly aggressive anti-leak investigations that took place under President Obama? We'll discuss with the former executive editor of the Washington Post, Len Downey, and we'll talk to Yahoo News' John Ward about Donald Trump's return to public rallies on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And our third co-host, Victoria Bassetti, is off today, but we are joined by the aforementioned John Ward. John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, guys. How's it going? Uh, Great. Great. And before we get to you and your reporting on the return of Donald Trump as though he had ever gone away, we should say something about uh, these uh, phone record subpoenas. Uh, Just to state the obvious, uh, we, all of us in the press, depend on our ability to talk to sources anonymously uh, without disclosing their identities because that's how we learn stuff that people in power Uh, whether it be in the government or in corporations or in other large institutions, don't want you to know. And while sources can often be problematic, can often have their own agendas, uh, can often be trying to mislead us, it's essential in order to do our job to be able to talk to these people and not uh, have their identities publicly known to powers that be, as, uh, including prosecutors of the Justice Department. So it is a bit unnerving to learn that uh, last year under Bill Barr, there was quite a few phone records of reporters being subpoenaed. This is not a new thing. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a trend. Uh, it sort of began during the uh, George W. Bush administration um, when uh, we were sort of singularly focused in a way on, on national security issues. And there was a ton of really good and really important uh, investigative reporting uh, on those kinds of issues. And as a result, the government began to get more aggressive in trying to stop these leaks we all we've talked about uh, how aggressive the Obama Justice Department was in going after leaks and reporters, uh, and you know as you mentioned in the in- introduction, um, seizing reporters' records. Um, 
We didn't hear that much about it during the Trump administration until recently. Uh, this was going on, but it was happening quietly, and 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 a lot of it happened really at the toward the end of the administration by Bill Barr. But what's what's potentially sinister about what happened during the Trump administration is the possibility. We don't know this yet, but the possibility that this was um, not really driven so much uh, by prosecutors and and lower level national security officials who are concerned about potential damage to national security. But I wonder uh, whether this was being driven by Donald Trump himself, given his incredible antipathy toward uh, the press, the fake news, the enemy of the American people. And that if that's the case, and I think there needs to be much more reporting to determine what role Trump played in this and whether he was directing this for uh, not necessarily national security reasons, but uh, for more personal reasons and political reasons. Um, I think that's potentially the next beat in this story that I think we need to learn about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, clearly uh, there's a lot we need to learn. The Biden folks, while saying that the president, the president himself has said he doesn't want this sort of thing to take place during his administration. They have not been forthcoming about what the circumstances were here, what these investigations were all about, whether they're still ongoing, whether the Justice Department is going to use these records uh, in order to process leakers. We know none of that. But but it is interesting that most of these, the underlying investigations seem to relate to political investigations, right? As opposed to just, you know, uh, a ter- you know, a terrorism case, for example, which is what the Obama administration was mostly uh, yeah. concerned with. Yeah. yeah so the now- kinds of cases that Donald Trump would have a particular interest in involving Comey, involving Hillary Clinton's emails, so on, and those yeah. kinds of cases. I mean, look, one of the reporters is Adam Entius. He was with the Washington Post at the time, and then I think he's now at the New Yorker. Uh, but he was the first to report the uh, FISA warrant uh, of Carter Page. Now, I remember I was the first for Yahoo to report that Page was being investigated by the FBI, uh, and that was during the campaign. But when I saw the uh, Antius story about the FISA warrant, I, I got to say, I was like, wow, I'd never seen a story that identified the target of a FISA warrant, an ongoing FISA warrant at the time. So one can understand how that would have been, would have raised concerns within the Justice Department, given the true, super secrecy true. of the FISA process. So, look, there's a lot we need to learn. I mean, look, my private theory here is it's not private because this is a public podcast. So (laughs) my theory here is that this could well relate to the John Durham special counsel investigation and that towards the end of the Trump administration, uh, Trump was demanding to know whether Durham was going to bring any criminal cases. Uh, that's what they were looking for. And the easiest criminal cases to bring are leak cases because, you know, that's, you, it's, it's an easy, you know, if you can prove that somebody leaked classified information, you got them nailed. And, you know, this became the sort of fallback to placate, uh, the president to have uh, Durham go down this road. This is speculation on my part. It's a theory. We don't know. Uh, but um, it, it, we're all going to be watching closely to see uh, how this plays out. But 
Before we get to Len Downey uh, to give us his cosmic take on all this, um, we've got Ward here um, who uh, has a preview story about Donald Trump returning to the public stage in North Carolina this weekend. Uh, John, what do we know? Uh, well, I don't have any cosmic takes. I know that. Um, <laughs> we don't but, bring you uh, on We don't count on you takes. for cosmic takes. We have good, others good. for that. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'm happy to be the earthbound correspondent. Um, <laughs> You know, Trump is going to be speaking at their North Carolina state GOP convention on Saturday. It's uh, the first public rally since CPAC, which he did in February. And um, there's reports that he's going to be doing more rallies over the summer. What do we know about it? (laughs) It appears he's set on continuing to talk about the 2020 election. My reporting was just an attempt to get a sense of uh, where Republicans are, you know, what, how they feel about what he s- appears set on doing. And I spoke to Republicans who have worked on electing Republicans. These are not county chamber of commerce type Republicans. They're not grassroots activists. These are people who count votes and, f- and, and are experienced in how to win elections. And I talked to those kind of people for a reason, because I wanted to understand how they see uh, Donald Trump impacting the party going forward in the 2022 midterm elections. And, you know, if he decides to run for president and, you know, to a person, they all just said, it'll be great if he doesn't talk about 2020. Um, What's what's the what's the odds on that? Yeah, Yeah. right. Um, You know. He's obsessed. He can't talk about anything else. It's a continuation of a denial of reality that the Republican Party has been stuck in for five, six years now regarding Trump, hoping and praying against all evidence that he will change his basic DNA. But but, but John, I mean, I, I see how that would be a problem for some Republicans who you know, are going to rely on suburban voters to get reelected or in more moderate districts. But for a lot of Republicans running, I mean, I think I, I can't remember what our last Yahoo News YouGov poll uh, said about uh, the percentage of Republican voters who believe that um, uh, Donald Trump should be the rightful president right now. Um, but this is this is also going to fire up the Trump base and help some uh, Republican candidates, isn't it? It will. It will definitely fire up his base. Um, but it will also fire up Democrats and Republicans who, you know, know how to run elections. Uh, they are convinced that the best way for the Republican Party to win elections is to talk about what it's going to do for people and how it's going to fight against Democrats and fight against Biden and not play sour grapes about the last election with unfounded lies about uh, non-existent uh, fraud and cheating. And of course, there's been some reporting uh, recently, uh, notably uh, a tweet from Maggie Haberman of the New York Times that got a lot of attention and other stories since then uh, that uh, Donald Trump believes uh, he is going to be reinstated uh, as president um, after some the uh, Arizona audit and maybe a Georgia audit after that gets finished. Uh, something that you referred to in your Yahoo News piece, I believe, as bonkers. 
Yeah, I mean, this is Alex Jones territory here. Um, and look, this is this is the basic argument against Trump doing this, apart from just from a pragmatic point of view. And let's not lose sight of the fact that this is a former president who incited one of the most serious attacks on democracy in American history because of his lies about the election. Um, that's the that's the ethical and moral case against him doing this. But as a Republican who wants to win elections, the pragmatic case is, you know, in 2020, the 2020 election is about as strong an argument as you can get for why Trump should not be the party's leader. Because up and down the ticket in the U.S. House, in the U.S. Senate, in state legislature races across the country, uh, Republicans won most of the close contests. Trump is one of the few Republicans to lose a competitive race in the 2020 election. You know, and if you look at the way that he then impacted the Georgia Senate race, that's a pretty conservative state. And yet he was doing the drumbeat of the uh, the election uh, being stolen all the way up until that special election. It was actually the result was, I think, the day before the insurrection and Republicans lost both of those seats. So all the evidence points to not only Trump being fairly toxic to a decisive number of voters, even as he revs up his base. But it also points to the fact that this rhetoric, these lies about the election are even more toxic. So, John, are we paying too much attention to Donald Trump? It strikes me uh, that political activists, you know, folks on Twitter are still obsessed with Donald Trump on both sides. The Democrats can't stop talking about Donald Trump. I get e fundraising emails every day from various Democratic committees, all sort of citing Donald Trump. Here's one I just came in the other day, the National Democratic Tra Training Committee poll should Merrick Garland prosecute Donald Trump, yes or no? You know, uh, it, it strikes me that, you know, people on the left and the Democratic Party have a vested interest in keeping us focused on Donald Trump and continually trying to show that the Republican Party is in hock to Donald Trump. As I read your story, though, you know, what left out to me is the Republicans, yeah, they don't want to denounce Trump because they still have that base. But for most of the party professionals, they would just as soon sort of, you know, move on to other things. They can't do it because of that base. So they're trying to sort of walk a fine line here. And maybe we are misrepresenting things by continually putting everything in the context of Donald Trump. I think there's always been truth to the argument that we pay too much attention to Donald Trump. That's how he basically hacked the 2016 election. But I think there is a very, a very interesting dynamic going on inside the Republican Party right now. You know, I'm, I'm combining sort of what I've seen in some of the polling data with firsthand anecdotal experience because I have personal relationships with family members that were not for Trump originally, then became Trump voters uh, after he became the nominee and were very supportive of him throughout his presidency. And then kind of eventually came to the realization that he was making all that stuff up after the election. And now uh, I sense that they're in a place where they would like to move on as well. They don't want to have to recant. They don't want to have to apologize. Um, but they would like to see the party move on. This is not all Republican voters. 
but there are, I think, a significant number of them. And the question is, how do you do that? Because the more that you Liz Cheney this, I'm not sure that wins them over. I'm not really sure how you do it, to be honest. Uh, well, I, th- I think the answer would be stop talking about the guy. Stop obsessing about every insane utterance from his mouth like he's going to be reinstated in August. Deprive him, deprive him of his oxygen is, is what people make that argument. That is, yeah, that is what Terry Sullivan told me. He ran Marco Rubio's campaign a couple of weeks ago. You, you put out a big fire by starving it of oxygen. The problem with that is that we have a attention economy in our media that I don't know that you that you can just engineer that. Uh, the, all the incentives, all the incentives, business, ego, including this podcast and otherwise <laughs> yeah, right, are, are, right. are built around attention. There's another problem, which is, look, Donald Trump uh, in talking about being reinstated is in QAnon territory. And QAnon and these, you know, nutso conspiracy theories are all happening kind of like sub rosa under the surface here on in, in Internet chat rooms. Um, and that's going to continue whether we talk about it or not. And so we don't know if the next January 6th attack is is being planned right now. Hopefully law enforcement would know that. But when you don't pay attention to these issues, you might get surprised because you know, that that stuff is going on, whether you talk about it or not. I, I agree to some extent, but I also think institutions are super important here. I think, you know, Facebook's decision to deplatform Trump, I'm conflicted about it in terms of principles and ethics. There's right. strong arguments on both sides of that, but I think there's no question that, uh, you know, they have reduced his influence by taking him off of that platform. It doesn't mean he can't speak freely. He just can't use their business. You know, I guess I'm showing some of some of the argument for this. But look, the Republican Party is another institution. Um, And, you know, institutional leadership matters. And I think, you know, we're in we're in a new era of trying to figure out how do we balance sort of the freedoms and the the flattening uh, ethics of the Internet era uh, with the need to preserve social and political cohesion and order. These are these are big questions. Yeah. Okay, John, you're getting very I'm, cosmic I feel like I'm boring us. you now, Michael. No, no, yes. yeah, yeah, we 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 agreed you weren't going to be you weren't our cosmic guy and yet you've ended up uh giving us uh, your view from the cosmos. Um well, look, John, I'm sure you'll be following the rally. Uh so please uh let us know how it goes, and um, and then we can no, decide. No, I'm not going to actually. You know what? I'm not going to follow it because, just like <laughs> okay. you said, I'm not going right. to get, pay attention to this. Uh, right. I will. I will. I will catch up on you know a few headlines, and that's about it. Because I don't. Right. It's not going to surprise me whatever he says. <laughs> you know, and I know I've got a lot better things to do on a Saturday. Yeah, <laughs> as we all do. Yeah. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, man. Yep. All right, guys. After we taped this podcast on Friday, the New York Times reported that the Justice Department under President Trump also sought to obtain the email logs of its reporters and that it continued to seek those records in secret up until March during the Biden administration. All right.
right. Uh, we are now joined by our old boss, Len Downey, uh, executive editor of The Washington Post between 1991 and 2008, the author of multiple books, most recently, all about the story, news, power, politics, and The Washington Post. Len, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you very much. It's really amazing to hear you call me your boss, Michael. <laughs> I yeah. said former boss, I yeah. think. Well, <laughs> former, Len, Len we, can, we can trade stories since uh, we've both tried to, be, to have been Isakov's boss for many yeah. years. I usually refer to Clydeman as my boss. Yeah. Those are their quotes. <laughs> right. Anyway, so lots to talk about, but I want to start out with uh, we just learned uh, this week that the Justice Department had secretly subpoenaed the phone records of a number of New York Times reporters. This comes after the disclosure that they had done the same thing with Washington Post reporters. And uh, with a CNN reporter, you uh, were sharply critical of the Obama administration when it was doing this back in those days. What do you make of these recent disclosures about what the Justice Department was doing under Bill Barr? Right. Yeah, that's right. It all this all seems to have taken place in 2020 under Bill Barr. And I, I'm going to back up a bit, if you don't mind, give you some history here. Sure. But all the way back to the George W. Bush administration, uh, when the, uh, the various uh, intelligence services in the United States got very concerned about leaks of confidential classified information. And they put a lot of pressure on uh, on that administration and then the incoming Obama administration. So, so some of this actually started during the Bush administration, but had not yet become public. Nobody had been arrested. Uh, there hadn't been any subpoenas or anything like that. But then during the Obama administration, there were nine prosecutions, uh, some of them under the uh, Espionage Act. Yes, exactly. And uh, there was more prosecutions than ever before for uh, for leaks of classified information. Uh, the people being prosecuted were the government sources and and other and other citizens who leaked this information. That culminated um, uh, in that administration with subpoenas, secret subpoenas of uh, of the uh, phone records of the Associated Press, Washington bureau. Uh, and they were actually targeted on a couple of reporters, but the subpoena covered 20 reporters uh, and their home phone, home phones, as well as their office phones, et cetera, uh, which uh, a huge outcry from the press about that. And it was followed by another subpoena uh, against a reporter for, uh, I believe it was CNN, that also uh, in, in the uh, prosecution that occurred after that, of, of the uh, leaker, uh, the reporter was uh, listed in that prosecution as aiding and abetting. Basically an unindicted co-conspirator. <laughs> that was, I think that was James Rosen, actually, uh, with, James Fox, yeah. with Fox, Fox right. News. Yeah. Right. CNN with Fox. And uh, so uh, as a result, uh, the, the press put a lot of pressure on the Justice Department. Uh, and uh, I was I was a, a member of a large group of uh, of uh, news executives and others and, and lawyers for news organizations uh, that were that met with uh, the Attorney General Holder and a series of meetings uh, to uh, to complain about this. Also to complain about the fact that uh, James Risen of the New York Times was under subpoena to be forced to testify about sources, which he refused to do. So we were very concerned about all of this, and Holder was receptive to our to our arguments. His deputy, it turned out, was the uh, was the person who was really pushing these processes. And he was in the meetings, too. And sometimes we actually observed disagreements between Holder and his deputy. Which deputy was, was that? that? Jim, Jim Cole? Cole? Was that Jim Cole? 
Probably. I just yeah. can't remember for sure now. And yeah. uh, and that's all I can really say about about the about the uh, details of the meetings, because they were by agreement off the record to discuss this issue. Uh, and as a result of these meetings, uh, the uh, uh, the Justice Department, the, uh, the U.S. attorneys all around the country, there's a manual for their conduct that's supposed to uh, direct how, how they how they do their business. Uh, and the manual was changed to make it more difficult to obtain and carry out subpoenas of this kind, uh, you were supposed to be sure that you had tried every other ask, every other way to find this information without subpoenaing reporters' records or reporters themselves. Uh, the attorney general was supposed to sign off instead of somebody else in the department before you could seek such a subpoena, and uh, we were we were pleased with that. We we thought, and and actually during the rest of the administration, the Obama administration, there was less of. Of all of this sort of and thing. And Len, wasn't an important point in those those new guidelines that you had to make every effort? The presumption was that you would you would let the news organization know and yes. give them an opportunity to negotiate. Yes, that was that was the other thing, which yes. did not happen um, right. during did the Trump administration. Any of these three instances under under Attorney General Barr, one has to presume that Barr signed off on these subpoenas because those are the rules. On the other hand, they did not follow the rule of, of approaching the uh, news organization. Uh, to see if they if they could negotiate a way around uh, around a secret subpoena. Was that mandated under those rules that they had to go to the news organization regardless yes. of what the circumstances were? Yes, I should add. Bar, the attorney general can sign off and can say that's not necessary in this case. Right, uh, it should not happen in this case because national security is involved, or because uh, the investigation might be jeopardized. Presumably, that's what Barr did, but we don't know because it still has not been. Yeah, I, I was going to say Barr's only brief comment. I think he was reached by a reporter who says I was following the Obama rules on that, and and we don't know much more than that. But you know, the, what, there are a number of things that are striking about these subpoenas. First of all, they relate to. Uh, reporting in 2017 and the subpoenas were three years later in 2020, uh, which is a long uh, lapse in time. Um, raising the question, why was this coming up just then? How urgent a matter of national security could it have been if there was a three-year time gap between when the reporting took place? Um, what, I, what I've noticed is that, first of all, um, intervening between the time that when those conversations took place that they wanted to subpoena the records of uh, the previous attorney general uh, before Barr, uh, in order to please the president, as William Sessions, in order to please the president, had announced publicly that they were conducting all these leaks investigations. Uh, right. And they were going to be very aggressive about them. And that happened before this, which is interesting, because then that could mean that the president then asked Barr or or maybe something was set in motion that was finally done under Barr or the president put pressure on Barr. But I also noticed that uh, all of these had to do with things that were of interest to uh, uh, to former President Trump. Uh, the Russia investigation was the subject of, uh, of one of these uh, subpoenas for sources. Uh, another one was uh, classified documents. Uh, the, 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 the classified reports and the Clinton phone messages, things that would have been of great interest to Trump. And I have to wonder if he put pressure on Barr at that time in 2020 with the election coming uh, to, to, uh, to do this. 
Yeah. I got to say, uh, and since then, since this has come out, uh, Jen Psaki at the White House has said President Biden has said this will not happen uh, in his administration. But I, I am not sensing a great deal of transparency from the Biden folks about this. I asked a bunch of follow up questions of the Justice Department just this morning. How was the Biden instructions uh, communicated to the Justice Department as the Justice Department changed its policies in any way, shape, or form as a result of this? Are they saying they will never subpoena reporters' records under any circumstances now, which, you know, could raise questions about how they're going to conduct leak investigations? None. Uh, and, and I'm not getting answers to any of those. They have not addressed those. So I find that unusual and not terribly forthcoming. And did the, and did Jen Psaki actually say the president had directed it, uh, Justice Department? No, she. I don't think she did. I, yeah, I, because I think their she, position had been the Justice Department is going to be independent in this administration. Right. I, right. I think what, what happened was that Biden actually uh, said to reporters that this would not happen. Uh, in his right. administration. And I right. And then she was asked about it at her briefing and she right. said that, uh, you know, the president said it and he meant it and, you know, but didn't say anything about directing uh, right. the Justice Department uh, to issue some new guidelines. But um, well, go ahead, Len, but I, I got a follow up question. There are several you. questions here. First of all, I don't think the Justice Department would necessarily have to issue new guidelines. It could simply observe the old guidelines, uh, in which case uh, it would be good to know what happened in this instance. Why in following the old guidelines did these three things take place? Uh, did, the, did the attorney general make an exception? For international security, or the or the uh, or the or the uh, the the investigation underway uh, being jeopardized, uh, in which case, why did he do that? Uh, what does this current Justice Department think about that? Under the similar circumstances, would this Attorney General make the same decision? Uh, why did they not approach the? Uh, because he, he made that he made that decision to not approach the news organizations in advance and negotiate with them. So you don't necessarily need to change the guidelines. You need to observe the guidelines. And that's what I don't know about uh, what actually happened in these three cases in 2020 under Attorney General Barr. And I don't know what the current attorney general intends to do in the future. Let me ask you this, just stepping back for a minute. I mean, is it what is your position on whether uh, or not there are could be circumstances where uh, a Justice Department subpoena of reporters' notes or testi- testimony, say, if national security is truly implicated, whether, whether that could be legitimate. Or are you a, an absolutist uh, on, on this issue of seeking testimony or, or notes uh, from reporters? I'm not an absolutist, but I so far have not seen, including these three instances, uh, where it was necessary to do so, at least without negotiating with the news organization. In, you know, in my time in running the Washington Post, there were many times when there were attempts to, when there were desires to, uh, to subpoena reporters, to subpoena notes, to subpoena other things. And in each case, we were notified in advance about the, the, uh, the government's desire to do that. And we were able to negotiate with them so that it didn't happen. Uh, or, or in the it case- didn't happen at all. There were no circumstances where you ever turned over or cooperated in any way. Uh, we never turned over notes or anything like that. The closest we 
came to that was in the Agnew case, uh, when former Vice President uh, Spiro Agnew uh, was under investigation and the, the Post broke the story about that. We also broke the story about uh, the fact the government was negotiating a plea with him. And as a result, uh, a court was about to order. The Justice Department came to us, said they wanted the notes uh, and said they were going to go to court to get them. And uh, uh, Ben Bradley, uh, Catherine Graham volunteered to, to take possession of the notes herself. And so if we were if we had lost the court case, they would have had to take them away from Catherine Graham. I, I think she put them in a safe in her office. I can't remember. <laughs> so what, what, what happened was in the day of the court hearing, on the scheduled court hearing, Agnew pleaded guilty and it became moot. So that was the closest we ever came to turning over any notes. In terms of testimony, we were always able to negotiate with the U.S. attorney or the Justice Department, whoever was involved, uh, for the reporter to simply take the stand and say, yes, my this is my story. What's in the story is true and not answer any other questions. Probably helped to have Edward Bennett Williams as your lawyer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, my one of the questions I pose to the chief of public affairs of the Justice Department this morning is – relates to sort of my theory about all this is which is that uh, uh these could well have arisen from the uh, Durham special counsel investigation John Durham the special counsel who Barr had appointed at the end and that this is what he's left to left with trying to you know mop up these leak cases and uh you know this may be a way for the Biden folks to basically uh tube those investigations because then the question is the you know what becomes of those records that were subpoenaed if if the policy if the new policy is this should not have been done are they going to throw out those records return them to the reporters or or what we don't know good question. No, we don't know yeah. good question yeah. yeah more broadly let's talk a bit about the challenges the press faced uh, during the Trump years and and how it acquitted itself. Um, because, I mean, you've spoken about this, uh, others have, and there was a great deal of great investigative reporting by The Post, The New York Times, and the rest of the media uh, uh, during the Trump years. On the other hand, uh, the press became not just increasingly adversarial, but increasingly willing to say things like that's a lie and that's a falsehood and, you know, other editorializing positions that we would not have said before, which probably has fueled the concerns of people on the right that the press is biased against them. How do you assess Overall, the way th those two. This was a very unusual situation confronting the press yet at a at a, uh, a time when, uh, you know, all of news media has been changing uh, as a result of as a result of the Internet. When uh, uh, news organizations like the ones you mentioned in your question, The Washington Post and The New York Times uh, are only are only one part of a huge uh, media ecosystem, which does include a lot of, uh, of uh, non-factual media. Uh, not, not to mention individuals, uh, anybody who can say anything they want to. And, uh, and uh, as a result, in my estimation, as a result of Trump's attacks on the press, uh, much of this media felt free to attack the press. And it made all the more, it made the decisions that the press would have to make all the more difficult, such as how to deal with, uh, with Trump's lies. Uh, and, uh, to, to say that something is false is factual. Exactly when I would have decided, if I would have decided as executive editor that we would say that Trump lied, as opposed to saying that statement is false, 
I'm not sure. It was very interesting to watch uh, to watch the New York Times uh, executive veteran public make they make those decisions. I don't feel that it's the behavior of the news media uh, that has uh, that that caused the backlash. It was Trump's behavior. It's Trump's convincing so many Americans, along with the along with the media that were backing him and still are backing him, that convinced many Americans not to believe uh, uh, truth telling truth telling news media. But but Len, uh, let me just pick up on the the whole question of using the the word l- lie or liar. Uh, because at the end of the day, it is crucial that the news media maintain its credibility with the public. And so I, I just wonder, I mean, today, having been through four years of Donald Trump uh, with all of his lies, um, did you become comfortable with the press, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post, say, putting the word, you know, lies in a headline? Because it is a a loaded uh, a term. It, it it does imply um, intent. Intent. That's, um, right. that's the question. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know that it's been in headlines, actually, right? but it's been in stories. Obviously, you quote other people. Uh, the the big lie is now is now a phrase that, uh, that you know that's used by used by many people. It has a certain meaning, uh, and uh, and so I I I don't think that the uh, the news media is uh, is asserting the big lie by itself, but it freely quotes other people referring to the big lie, and uh, and that's and that's different. Um, uh, uh, I, I think there's a larger issue here uh, that I also dealt with in that report towards the end, which is that um, regardless of Donald Trump, the news media has been changing in the digital age because of the question of whether or not it should be more interpretive in its reporting. Uh, and uh, and it has become more interpretive in its reporting. There's also voice in reporting. So you now have journalists who in the past, like Michael Isikoff, would have been confined to news stories. Uh, now, if Michael Isikoff chooses, uh, if he were working for a news organization, he might have more voice. He might have a blog. He might have a, uh, he might have a newsletter. Uh, I, I read a number of those from a number of news organizations. And they, and they don't ex- express personal opinions necessarily. But there certainly is interpretation, if not points of view, uh, in in those things. And people have gotten used to that. Plus, as I pointed out in my report, so many journalists now appear on television as regulars, as paid regulars on on, on, on news shows, panel shows, and so on. And even though they may not be stating opinions themselves and only trying to state the facts, they're surrounded by people whose jobs are to state opinions, including sometimes the moderators and the hosts. Uh, and so that, that that also raises questions, I think, in the public mind about whether or not how how bi- whether or not they might be biased in their work. And then, of course, there's a, there's the other uh, thing that's arisen, uh, which is the social media behavior of journalists. Uh, the, the 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 young the young woman who was uh, fired by AP shortly after being hired there because of the exp- opinions she expressed on social media. And these, these are, a lot of these are unresolved issues. I mean, they're, what, they're, what did you think of that case, by the way? Um, you know, the AP, which prides itself on, you know, they, they don't do opinion. They don't do hot right. takes. Uh, they're right. very grounded in right. reporting and facts. Right. Uh, and then when a young reporter uh, does that, I mean, and there was a huge backlash from from reporters inside the AP yeah. against the way they handle it. So where did you come down on that? Yes. Well, I, I can never, I've been asked this question before publicly, and I can never say exactly what I would do without knowing all the facts. Mm-hmm. I don't know everything that the managing editor of the AP, who I saw on, on Brian Stelter's show on Sunday, talking about this, knew at the time that he made this decision. And and obviously, because this was not a seasoned reporter by any means, somebody just starting out in the business, 
uh, with a background of uh, background of activism raised questions for me about whether she should necessarily have been hired in the first place or when she was hired, uh, whether or not she was instructed well enough about putting that all behind her. Uh, because as you point out, the AP does not have editorials and does not have opinion columnists and does not have blogs and and, and those sorts of things. Uh, and so it is, it is a different kind of news organization than, say, even the Washington Post. Yeah. One of the things uh, that the AP managing editor did say on that uh, on that Stelter show was that she was fired not for past social media Correct. tweets, but things she had done while she was working for the AP, which right. is more understandable, although I haven't seen what those were. Right, exactly. uh, so it does make it a little harder to evaluate. And you also raised the issue of whether it would put in jeopardy AP reporters in the field covering the Palestinian-Israeli right. conflict. Uh, because of what she said. But let me give you an example of something that's very much in the news now, uh, which does relate to the way the media covered the Trump era. Last year, when Trump, uh, people in the Trump administration and uh, their allies uh, started talking about the idea that the that COVID may have come from the lab in Wuhan uh, and was not, uh, you know, an animal to human transmission. This was widely dismissed as a fringe conspiracy theory. That term was used by CNN and others to debunk the idea. And, um, you know, basically anybody saying that or proposing it was marginalized. We now know that there's serious reason to suspect that that may have, in fact, been the case. It's still an open question, according to the U.S. intelligence community, but more and more evidence has come in that at least makes that a plausible explanation for COVID. And that, you know, can strike some as an example of way of how the media overreacted to Trump was just instinctively going to dismiss anything that supported a Trump narrative as being a fringe conspiracy or a lie or a, a falsehood uh, and was not open to what the state of the evidence was. I, I, I totally agree with you about that. That was a big mistake that the news media has made. Um, uh, regardless of how they reported on what Trump had to say or what the people who are advocating that had to say, it should have been investigated. It should have been investigated by the news media. They should have been more aggressive in, in dealing with the intelligence community about it, because it sounds like now that there was, within the intelligence community, still an open mind about this. But the news media was not was not reporting that. I, I do want to point out, I feel uh, an obligation to point out um, that uh, there were some reporters uh, from early on and throughout, including our own Jenna McLaughlin at Yahoo News, who reported the facts um, and did not get caught up in in this narrative that, Mike, you're, you're alluding to. And she did a story all the way back in April of 2020 in which she cited nine intelligence sources saying that the intelligence community was taking the lab leak theory seriously and investigating it. Uh, and um, that's just that was just good old fashioned reporting, not not looking at it through some ideological lens, um, just talking to sources. Um, and it's sort of uh, surprising to me that we didn't have more of that and, and disturbing that we didn't have more of that kind of reporting. Jenna's a great reporter. If she could find nine intelligence professionals who are willing to talk to her about this, I'm sure a lot of other reporters in Washington could have done the same thing. Yes, and they and they should have. You're absolutely right. They should have. 
So let's talk, uh, you know, we have a new president now. Clearly, there's a difference in the way the press has been covering Biden than the way it covered Trump. But of course, they're very different presidents who have very different styles. And uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, one is more wedded in what we traditionally view as as facts and evidence. But what do you make of the way um, uh, the press has been covering Biden so far? Well, this is really interesting because I think the press has been pretty aggressive in covering Biden. I think that they've raised questions about, uh, you, you, uh, you know, given given extensive coverage. I, I'm talking about the, the 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 factual press now. I'm not talking about uh, cable television uh, hosts and that sort of thing. I'm talking about uh, reporting that's going on, uh, and a lot of the reporting has actually been fairly uh, uh, aggressive about. Uh, for instance, there have been a series of stories lately about how about how the, this, this uh, very ambitious agenda that the president has is, 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 is not going anywhere at the moment, or at least at least is not is not being fulfilled as fast as he as he uh, intended to do. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think they're holding him accountable. What's interesting about it is that there are people on the left, uh, including commentators on the left, who are accusing the press of, of being too aggressive about him and then and, and picking on small problems. I'm now working on a CPJ report about the first year of the Biden administration in the press. And in talking to uh, I'm just beginning to talk to reporters about about covering this administration. And uh, they certainly uh, are not they're not in love with this administration. They're approaching it just as skeptically as they would approach any administration. Well, as some of us would say as well, they should. Um, of course, uh, right. That's it. Just to uh, wrap up here, you wrote the you know your memoir about your years at the Washington Post, uh, all about the story. I'd like to just sort of you know get you to reflect for a moment, uh, if you could sort of pick out. One moment that you're proudest of during your lengthy tenure as uh, as Washington Post editor, and one moment where you could look back and say, "I would have done that, or should have done that differently." Sure, I, I did that in the book too. I, I would say two two moments from from many where I felt good about decisions I made was, of course, my involvement as an editor in the Watergate story. Now, I was only one of half a dozen people involved in that, but uh, I, that has to be the most important thing that I was involved. You were the deputy metro editor at the time, so editing Woodward and Bernstein. I was editing they, Woodward yeah. and Bernstein and the rest of the reporting. That's true. Yeah. Um, and so I'm very proud of that. I guess as, as executive editor, the most important decision I made that I felt I made right was to publish uh, over the objections of the president of the United States after meeting in the Oval Office, uh, the uh, Dana Priest uh, expose of the CIA secret prisons abroad where they were uh, holding and torturing uh, 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 suspected terrorists. Uh, and that was uh, wasn't a difficult decision for me because I was confident as we went along that we were doing the right thing. But nevertheless, it was a big decision. Uh, and so I guess that would be a high point. Shortly uh, after that, or maybe around that same time, uh, the thing I I'm, I'm most regret, which I talked about extensively in the book, was that during the when the Iraq war was, was when the administration was preparing, the George W. Bush administration was preparing to go to war in Iraq. The administration put out a lot of false information, including in speeches by the president of the United States and the vice president of the United States, among other things. Uh, and we and we covered all that and we raised we raised questions within the stories about things, but we did not 
report what turned out to be true, which is that there were people in the intelligence community who knew these were lies, to bring up that question of lies again. Uh, and uh, they were not on the record, obviously. They were, uh, they were uh, difficult to draw out. But we had reporters on our staff who were being aggressive about that. And uh, we published stories about it, but I put very few of them on the front page. I think only two or three over time. And I did not take a special interest in it. As, as you know, Michael, I, I was a very hands-on executive editor in the faces of the newsroom. Yes, I do remember. Yes. I did anybody's face about that. I was focused on other things about the preparations for the war, which I think we did a good job of pointing out that they were not preparing well for the war, which turned out to be true, uh, and so on. My focus was elsewhere. Uh, That was a big thing. I'm going to point out an accomplishment of yours from much earlier in your career that actually had a big influence on me when I was starting out as a reporter, which is your coverage of the D.C. courts, which I think may have been the first reporting job you had at the Washington Post. Remind me, I think back then it was called, now it's called D.C. Superior Court. The Court of General Sessions. The Court of General Sessions. It's run by the federal government because the District of Queens still is today. The courts are run by the federal government because the district is not a state. Uh, and uh, at that time, the Court of General Sessions was a mess. Uh, it was uh, it, the judges were mostly political appointees uh, who didn't know what they were doing. Uh, and uh, both uh, Ben Bradley, who was then the new managing editor of The Washington Post to become executive editor, and my city editor, Steve Isaacs, had each covered the court several decades apart from each other. And they knew what a mess it was. And I had done some promising stories out of police headquarters that showed some investigative uh, talent. And so they sent me down to the court. I was only making $105 a week. So if nothing had come of it, it wouldn't have cost the paper much. Uh, and just to see what I could find. And it turned into a year's investigation. And as a result of the uh, series that we published on the front page, a seven-part series, the Johnson administration, which was interested in judicial reform, abolished the Court of General Sessions and went to Congress to have the D.C. Superior Court replace it. Well, by the time I was covering the courts uh, in the late 80s, uh, in in no small part due to your reporting, uh, the the courts were were cleaned up uh, significantly. But there were were still a lot of problems. There was still some petty corruption going on there. Uh, And I I think you wrote a book about this, which I read at the time and and, – served as a model for uh, some of the reporting that I tried to do later on. So, Well, thank um, you. Yeah. Good to hear that. The book was called Justice Denied. It was my first book. There we go. Do you know Sally Busby, the uh, newly named editor of the Washington Post? I know. I've never never had to. Uh, I've been out and I've been retired now since uh, 2008. So I didn't come across her in her last two jobs of managing news organizations. Um, but I'm very impressed by her, uh, by her resume. Very, very impressed by her resume. I think I think she's a good fit for what the Washington Post needs now. Right. And coming from the AP, you know, a institution grounded in, you know, traditional, dispassionate, just the facts reporting is probably sends a message in and of itself about um, the direction of the Washington Post. Anyway, well, uh, for those who are uh, interested in any and all of this, uh, uh, Len's book is all about the story, News, Power, Politics and the Washington Post. Len, thanks for joining us. Thank you very, very much. Okay, cool. Thanks, Len. Thank you.